Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. It's Wednesday night. Halloween's over. The pumpkins are out at the curb. (laughs) Um, it's time for another uh, episode of Friends in Fiction, and we are so looking forward to tonight. So let's get started. You may notice that we've got a couple of designated hitters in tonight for <laughs> Patty Callahan Henry and Christy Woodson Harvey. But in the meantime, I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Meg Walker. And I'm Ron Block as Christy Woodson Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing the role of Patty Callahan Henry tonight. Yes. Right. And this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. And tonight we'll be talking with Wanda Morris. Uh, sorry. <laughs> All right, you're off the show, Meg. I'm off the show. I have a couple yeah, of one, yeah, one bob. One is that, bob. Is that what Patty would do? Yeah, get it together, Patty. <laughs> Um, Don't forget, as you know, we continue to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page, where you can find Wanda's books and books by the Fab Four and all of our guests from the show and from the podcast, all at a discount. Yes. And have you seen our fall schedule for the Wednesday night live shows? It's under announcements on our Facebook page. And for all of you are more than six, nine, bleh, bleh. okay, Christy messed up too. <laughs> are more than 96,000 members. Wow. That's amazing. It yeah. is crazy. And next week we have Philippa Gregory. Yeah, we're so excited about that. But tonight, we want to send a special shout out to Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner, our very own PB&J, who, yeah, who run the Friends Friends and Fiction Official Book Club with Brenda and Lisa. They are now an award-winning book club because this past weekend, they won a Zibby Award for Best Virtual Book Club, which is so cool. So we're so happy for them. We're thrilled. Um, Make sure you check out their Facebook. Facebook posts to see the great photos they shared of their exciting weekend in New York City. With 14,000 members in the Friends and Fiction Official Book Club with with Brenda and Lisa, Brenda and Lisa choose a book each month and host a chat with that book's author. They also have happy hours with Ron Block appearing as himself rather than as Christy (laughs) Woodson Harvey. And they keep everyone in the loop about suggested reads and upcoming releases. Their pick for November is actually my 2012 novel, The Sweetness of Forgetting, which just came out as a 10th anniversary edition. It's in stores now, and I'll be joining them on Monday, November 21st to discuss it. I hope I will get to see all of you there. But in the meantime, if you are watching us live tonight, please do send a big congratulations out to Brenda and Lisa in the comments for their exciting and well-deserved Zibby Awards win. Yes, cheers. Congratulations. Cheers. Cheers. And before we dive in with Wanda tonight, we have some exciting news to share with you. Um, we've told you all about our Friends in Fiction Behind the Book Club on the Fable app, where you can read along with us and other Friends in Fiction members as we dive into one book per month. Since, since this is the first show of the month of November, we are excited to share with you this month's book. Usually Patty does the drum roll honors, but Ron, would you care to pinch hit for her? I will see what I can do. <laughs> right. And this month we're going to be <laughs> anywhere you run by tonight's guest, Wanda Morris. I'll be hosting this month and I'm really looking forward to engaging with readers in the app to discuss the book and hearing your thoughts too. It's a great one to dig into, really thought provoking, and there's a lot to talk about. There is, it's a perfect choice. And all you have to do to read along with us is to download the Fable app and join our premium club full of behind the scenes info you won't get anywhere else. It's just $5 a month to join the club, 
or Fable also offers a special annual rate that gives you access to not only our club, but all of the premium book clubs, which include groups led by LeVar Burton of Reading Rainbow fame and Sean Astin of Lord of the Rings fame. Can't get any better than that, right? You you can learn more at fable.co forward slash friends and fiction. We hope you'll join us. It's going to be amazing. It is going to be. Now, you know, every week we love doing an Ask Us Anything segment. So if you have a question for us, type it into the comments now or leave it under the thread in the Facebook page announcements. And we'll try to get to your questions in upcoming episodes, or maybe we'll get to it tonight in the after show. But for now... I mean, let's introduce Wanda. Bring her in, Sean. Yeah, we're so yes. excited. So Wanda oh Morris is the acclaimed author of All Her Little Secrets, which was named as one of the best books of 2021 by Hudson Booksellers and selected as the number one top pick for library reads by librarians across the country. It was also selected as a book buzz pick by Good Morning America, and it won both the 2022 Lefty Award for Best Debut, debut Mystery Novel and the 2022 Georgia Author of the Year Award for Best First Novel. And uh, it was also, this is the one-year anniversary of the release of that book, so it's so exciting to have her here. But also, Showtime is developing All Her Little Secrets, a one-hour limited series drama starring and executive produced by three-time Emmy Award winner Uzo Aduba of Orange is the New Black fame. And Wanda will co-executive produce. And I want to know all about that. Oh, exciting. Yeah. Now, Wanda is an alumnus of the Yale. Is it, are you an alumnus or an alumnae? Alu- alumna, maybe. Alumna. Alumna. I don't know. <laughs> I think. I think. One of them. I didn't go to the Yale Writers Workshop. So I didn't know. <laughs> ask her. She done gone to the Yale Writers Workshop. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not gone there. She's also a member of Sisters in Crime, Mystery Writers of America, Crime Writers of Color, and she serves on the board of International Thriller Writers. She's also a corporate attorney who's worked in the legal department of several Fortune 500 companies. Wanda's married and the mother of three who lives in Atlanta with her family. Her new book, Anywhere You Run, just came out last week on the 25th and has been named as one of 15 standout historical fiction books to read this year. That's a mouthful. By Oprah Daly, you know, slacker. It's received a trifecta of starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, and Booklist. So let's bring her in. Wait, where is she? Oh, there you are. Hey. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me this evening. Oh, it's our pleasure. So to have you. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's get right to it. Um, tell us about Anywhere You Run. What's it about? And then- um, I, I described it. The micro description is it's a, a coming of age story of two sisters with lots of dead bodies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it um, it is a book that takes place in 1964. Um, it opens with the murder of three young civil rights activists who've come to Mississippi to help Black Mississippians get the right to vote. Um, and they are brutally murdered. And against this backdrop, um, Violet Richards is also brutally attacked. But she kills her attacker. Um, as a Black woman, she knows that she won't get justice in the Jim Crow South uh, of Mississippi, so she takes off running. She leaves behind in Jackson, Mississippi, a sister who's also in a bit of trouble as well. Um, she's pregnant and unmarried, which is the big no-no in the 60s. Um, when the police show up at her door looking for Violet, Marigold, the sister, decides, hmm, I better take off running as well so that I don't get hemmed up in this. And maybe I could get a fresh start with um, her unborn child. So both sisters are on the run, but unbeknownst to either of them, there is someone with uh, a lot of dark secrets and a dark past who has a really unique motive for finding the two women. And he is hot on their trail. Okay. But now (laughs) what's it really about? It is really a story about um, the bonds of sisterhood and love 
and loss and um, how women, particularly Black women, um, dealt with the oppression of the Jim Crow South. Um, Marigold, the sister who heads north, thinks that there's a better life up north because there's no more segregation or Jim Crow. Um, But in fact, she finds that there is a different sort of racism as well there. And so the story explores a number of themes around voting rights for Blacks in this country, um, police brutality, racism, a woman's right to govern her own body, a woman's financial independence, um, all the happy little topics that I usually write. You know, it's it's incredible though how timely that feels now. I, I mean, right. given that the that this was a time period, you know, 50, 50 years ago, right? Sixty years ago, and and here we are again with the same topics in the news. Exactly. That's what I hope that readers come away with that they see the really stark and horrifying parallels between something that happened sixty years ago and what's currently happening today in 2022. I was talking with my daughter recently and she's in her twenties. And I told her, I said, you know, you have less rights in your twenties now than I did when I was in my twenties. And we're in the 21st century. Um, It shouldn't work that way. It shouldn't work that way. No. So Wanda, let's talk about your decision to set the book in the Jim Crow era South at such a stark time in the civil rights movement with the murder of three freedom riders in Mississippi. I mean, there were so many chilling moments experienced by your fictional sisters in the novel um, Marigold and Violet. Writing those scenes as a black woman living in the South, did you was it a visceral experience for you writing this book? I tell you, um, it was really visceral when I was doing the research for this book because. Um, and, and first and foremost, let me give a shout out to the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African-American history and culture. They were a godsend. They're here in Atlanta. And when I decided on the topic that I wanted to write about, I walked into the library. I told the librarian, you know, here's what I want to write about. Kind of where do I start? And he was like, I got you. And he just opened up a treasure trove and... Um, There were books, there were papers that they made accessible to me, um, pictures, um, any number of things. And so researching the book and reading the firsthand accounts of people who were beaten and um, tortured just for trying to get an application to vote. Um, Looking at some of the pictures um, of people who were just caught in the fray of trying to help Black citizens get equal access to the polls, um, to, you know, a seat at a a lunch counter, for example. Um, There were actual pictures, and those were really, really difficult to look at. So um, the the research was was intense. I'm not going to lie. The research was intense. And um, and writing some of the scenes, I often would write a scene and then like take a break, um, like, you know, yeah. go watch some cartoons or um, I knit a lot or, you know, just do something where I could could step back from it. It was it was a really, really dangerous time um, for blacks and particularly in the, the deep south. Um, Mississippi was one of the states which just entrenched in segregation. And um, they I reference it in the book, the Mississippi Citizens Council uh, was a group of um, white business leaders that had decided um, they would not follow the federal law uh, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and had decided that they would just become entrenched in segregation and they would do whatever it took, including murder, um, to make sure that um, the Jim Crow South stayed segregated. Wow. Wow. Um, God, that's, I, I, I could just imagine delving into the research of all of that and, and just, 
I think it's so hard. I, you know, I, I wonder, I, I write about World War II, which also has some really difficult things to mm-hmm. delve into. And it's yeah. just so hard to imagine things like that happened in the not so distant past, you know, in, right. in a, yeah, yeah, I can absolutely imagine your research journey there. Yeah. Um, speaking of journeys, the sister's journey in Anywhere You Run is such a powerful story um, mm-hmm. and such a meaningful exploration of what sisterhood can mean. Um can you talk a little bit about um, the the sisterhood aspect? Do you have sisters? What inspired the sister relationship in the book? Yeah, um, I you know I guess I must have a thing about sibling relationships because my yeah. first book also had a sibling relationship. It was a, a brother and sister, but there really is something special about um, a sister. Uh, relationship. And I I have sisters. Um, there were originally four of us. One has passed. Um, and so I, I think I leaned into that. Um, particularly if, if any of you have sisters, you know how it is, you, you, you're bonded like this, but then there's still some things you might keep to yourself, some struggles, um, there's always that kind of, you know, oh, she's smarter than me or she's prettier than me, um, that kind of thing that goes on between sisters. But it doesn't um, deter that bond, that 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 strength of love between the sisters. And so I try to to bring kind of my own personal experience with that into the book. And um, one of the things when I was writing the book. I wanted to make sure that people understood that even though everyone else, the outside world, thought that the sisters were very different. In fact, they were very much alike. And um, part of, you know, kind of their character arc was to finally come to that realization that, you know, they were both, you know, very strong women. They were both vulnerable as well. Um, so yeah, I, I tried to imbue the book with, with a lot of that, um, that kind of comes out of my personal relationships with my sisters. I thought it was interesting that you talk, they, they lost a sister, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are actually three sisters. There's Rose, Marigold, and Violet. And, um, Rose kind of comes in through uh, a series of diary entries. Um, but Yeah. Yeah, they're three sisters. Yeah, and Rose's voice was very powerful through the whole thing too. She was—it mm-hmm. was really amazing how you wove that in. Um, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about your um, connection. You connected the sisters already, but um, the the places that they traveled to, so Chillicothe and Cleveland. What connections do you have to those? And before you answer that, I just want to tell everybody, put this on the record that. We just recently discovered that my grandmother was, her name was Violet Vera, and that's Violet changed her name to Vera in the book. So I don't know if that was our, our I know it was our, cosmic connection know. or what. That's awesome. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. We just, we just kind of figured that out the last yeah. time we talked and I was like, what? Um, <laughs> yeah, that is so cool. Um yeah, so Chillicothe, Georgia is a fictional town, um, of course, it, but it's loosely based on a town in East Georgia here. And I certainly didn't want to use the real name because there are some aspects of that town that aren't very pleasant. And I didn't want anyone to think that I was disparaging their their hometown. And so, okay, but what's the town? Just I'll whisper it to you. <laughs> Um, so yeah. And so, you know, Chillicothe was kind of my nod to Ohio because I'm originally from Ohio. Um, yes, I'm originally from Cleveland. Oh, I had no idea. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Ron and I have talked about this endlessly. Um, so yeah, so I put Cleveland in the second novel because, 
you know, confession time. It was kind of lazy research. I mean, <laughs> all that other research on the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. I was kind of like, I just need a town where I don't have to go and research that town as well. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm from Cleveland. So I knew the streets and I knew, you know, some of the landmarks. Um, so that was kind of my my lazy way of researching. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm, I'm originally from Cleveland. Um, you know, I was wondering too, did you, um, Ron, you were supposed to ask her about firsthand research. Like, did you talk to, <laughs> Oh, damn it. Nobody's following my script tonight. Oh, that's later on. Let's talk about the soul food and the music. Yeah. Okay. Since I wrote the script, I get, I chose the best question for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Southern soul food and 60s soul music are such an evocative thread in this book. And I love the scenes where Violet was trying to learn how to cook at the <laughs> diner. <laughs> and I was thinking, if there, I was, you know, if there was a tasting menu for this book, what would it include? Like, if you were to do a tasting menu, we we're going to have an event. What, what would you have? <laughs> oh gosh, that's a good one. I probably say, I probably say catfish. Um, because remember they had the fish fry and yeah. Hank liked to fish. Yeah. So there would definitely be some aspect of fish. Um, I think sweet potato pie, pound cake, um, black eyed peas. I mean, you know, kind of all those southern delicacies. I think I just gained five pounds listening to you. I talk. know. I was just gonna. I was just thinking. So, Wanda, when are you inviting us over for dinner? Because right. we're oh, available. <laughs> Let me tell you something that those scenes where uh, Vera Violet was trying to learn how to cook. Yeah, I snatched that from real life. That, that is me. <laughs> I am not a cook. Okay. I am not a cook. My children, my husband will tell you she is warm, she is loving, she sets a beautiful table, you know, but she's not a cook. So now you you would not come to my to my dinner party. You would come to my dinner party for the vivacious conversation and the lovely table and the music. I love music at my dinner parties, but someone else always cooks or I cater. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> you know what? If you can buy frozen Mary B's biscuits, why why do you have to learn how to make biscuits? There you go. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Now, since we've gone talked about the food, what about that playlist? I know you posted it on your website. Would yeah. you share some of the songs you were listening to while you were writing this book? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, so music is very important to me because music was always throughout my house. And you know, it's a wonder that I don't play an instrument because there was always so much music. My parents loved music, <clears throat> excuse me, and my older brothers and sisters. Um, and so when I was researching um the book, I, you know, I did a number of things aside from the, the intensive research around the historical aspects of the book. I also leaned in and I read a ton of, you know, magazines like, you know, Life and uh, Jed and Ebony, um, old magazines from the 1960s. Um, but I also listened to a lot of music during that time period because I wanted to immerse the reader in what it was like to be in 1964, whether you were in the South or the North. And music was part of that. Um, there are various scenes throughout the book. There are nightclub scenes where music is um, very evocative. Um, there are scenes where, um, like they're having a party at, at Hank's house and, and there's music. But I listened to a lot of Nina Simone and Thelonious Monk and Patsy Cline, um, 
Frank Sinatra. Um, it was kind of a wide breadth of music because I had such varied characters. And, and some of those songs reminded me of the characters and kind of what their struggles were and, and, and what they were going through. Um, but, you know, if, if you like music, and I don't care what kind of music you like. I mean, who doesn't like 1960s music? Like Reeves and the Vandellas and Jackie Wilson and all these, you know, artists. That, exactly, exactly. All of that. Um, because it gave me an opportunity to kind of flesh out the characters and the scenes in the book um, through music. Interesting, you know, fun little fact. When I write new material, I can't listen to music though. I have to write. Same, same. Yeah, I, I can't do that. Same yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and well, others, that's listening. all they do. That's how they yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's all that's always that music while I was walking around the house or yeah. cleaning up or something. Yeah. Yeah. Patty always has music um going when she's writing. <sighs> I can't do it. Yeah, I have to write in silence. Yeah. 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 Same here. Same Silence here. or like background noise that doesn't have words that I can just well, people people can um, find your playlist on your website. Is that right? Or your, yes. your social media? Yes. Yeah. If you just go to WandaMorrisWrites.com right. and you click on um, books and you go to anywhere you run um, and just scroll down and they'll take you right to the Spotify playlist. Yeah. Awesome. It's a good one too. I love it. It's Thank so you. like it's so evocative of the time period too. When I'm reading, I was like, I could kind of jam along a little bit with it. Yeah. Um, so oh, now I'm going to bring it down a little bit or make it a little more serious. Um, so <laughs> anywhere you run starts in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, in the beginning of the book, you actually are upfront about telling readers that your story is going to contain authentic terminology from the time of the setting of the book, and that's a tricky trick. Can you talk about your decision to do that and being so honest and why you think it's important to be so? That's a good question. I'll tell you, I had to, you know, I had to do a little pushback um, when when I turned in the manuscript. Um, my editor thought, mm, I don't know if you want to include these, these epithets. Mm. And I told her, let me think about it. And I thought about it and I was like, nope, they got to be in. Um, And the reason why I did that is because I had done massive research just on the historical um, parts of this book. And to not have the way people actually spoke and talked um, during that period meant that the book wasn't quite as authentic as it could be. Um, and first and foremost, if I'm going to bring a story like this, which is strong and, and powerful and chilling, yeah. it ought to be authentic as well. Yeah. And so I do give readers a trigger warning that, you know, if, if you don't want to see this language, this may not be the book for you. But the other reason why I fought to keep the, the epithets in is because words matter. Words matter. And when you call someone an epithet, you are telling them that they are less than, that they are subhuman, that they are anything but what they actually are. And that was part and parcel of the segregationist society back then to make Blacks feel less than. And so very, very important to keep this yes. language, albeit horrific, but to yeah. keep it in the book so that the book rang true and that the characters were authentic. Good for you. I'm that's so wonderful. glad you fought for that. I mean, that's and that's a hard thing to do because this is just your second yeah. novel. It's not like you've been doing this for 20 years or, right. you know, you have been published for 20 years and felt right. like, you know, I, I, I just I admire your courage in doing that. And I think it was the right thing. Yeah, Kristen, you know, Kristen writes World War II historic fiction and, you know, uh, her books have a lot about anti-Semitism and right. yeah. I think you really can't convey no. the horror of that authentically unless yeah. you, you can't leave it out. It's unless sad. you really look yeah. into the black soul of somebody who thinks that's okay. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 
Exactly. And, and it, it should, it should hurt to read it. I mean, it should hurt. Like you, you should right. feel that you should feel it when you're reading that. You know what I mean? Because it's, yeah. it's a reminder of a time that should never be repeated. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. And it drives, it drives it home too. And mm-hmm. I've spoken before about how um, from, especially from historical fiction, I grew up in a school where we didn't learn these things. This was not part of our curriculum. Mm-hmm. But this really brings it home for me and it makes me go, wow. This really did happen, and this is yeah. horrible. And so, I think being authentic is is absolutely the right way to go. Yeah, yeah. I've been asked before, like, why did you start the book with such a terrible scene? And I said that scene was crucial, not only to the content of the story, but it was crucial to understand the time period in which the book is set. Yeah, and that. If three young men, two white, one black, come to help black Mississippians get the right to vote and their life is not valued, then what does that say about every other life? Um, And so I wanted to immerse the reader immediately into what this meant and and what the impact was. Um, So, you know, it's it's not for the faint of heart, but... You know, my last book wasn't either with the openings. No, I was gonna say, <laughs> Sorry, I don't make any it's, it's just your thing. We we just said we come to expect this from you. Well, well, there's so much praise for you right now in the live comments from our our people who are watching live, saying thank you so much for your authenticity and mm-hmm. how much words matter. And even Lisa, our beloved Lisa Harrison, who runs the Friends of oh. Fiction, I love Lisa. We do too. I'll never forget the first time I was called the N-word. It cut deep. It was going to make me cry. Words matter. And I love you, Wanda. So. I will not cry on the show. (laughs) Knock it off, Lisa. Yeah, (laughs) Lisa, put it out. Oh, uh, we're not done yet. All of us us have cried on this show, so don't feel like the Lone Ranger. You know, Wanda, I wrote a book, um, The High Tide Club, with a young... um, she's 10 or 11 years old um and she's black and she's uh, a gullah girl on a island off off the coast of uh georgia uh right at the beginning of world war right before world war ii mm-hmm. and bad things happened to her and the only way i could convey how awful the man who victimizes who assaults her was was to have him say those things. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, um, and I sort of had to, I sort of really had to um, lobby to let, uh, to let this character say these things and convey how awful he was. Yeah. But, um, and you know, it doesn't help if you're a white writer Mm. writing those scenes it's it's touchy yeah touchy but sometimes i mean over the years i've had i've had characters you know i i write sort of mysteries and women's fiction but when i've had characters do bad things it's interesting readers will email me and say how could you (laughs) how could you and i can't i i I have to say you know that wasn't me You know what's interesting when um, my editor and I were discussing um, whether to to leave these epithets in, yeah. um, you know, and I told her, I said, you know, let me think about it. She's like, maybe, you know, you could use some other term or something. And I was like, let me think about it. So, so I went back and I did some more research. And the other terms that I came up with were worse than the first yeah. set. And I included a couple of them. And I was like, to call somebody this is just wow. horrific. And I was like, that's just yeah. as bad as the other. It's it's not yeah. the N word, but it's just as bad. Yeah. Um, so she kind of set me loose. So I'm going to put some of those yeah. in there. But it was just a really <laughs> horrible time. And and. Yeah. Those words, unfortunately, are still bantered about today. It's, you know, it's nothing. And I'm like, they still sting, just like Lisa said. Those words still sting. They still sting. Yeah. And they they really, 
I was telling Wanda before we uh, we were in the green room ahead of time. I was telling her that be, right after I finished Anywhere You Run, I watched Respect, the Aretha um, Franklin biopic, and uh, and they dropped the N word in that movie, and it's it's um, Aretha Franklin's father, who's a preacher, very powerful, influential preacher in Detroit when he encounters Aretha's soon to be husband, you hear that word Mm -hmm. because he says, you get out of my house. Mm -hmm. And it, and it really made my head spin all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. It was was so powerful. It's a horrible word. No matter who uses it, black, white, blue, whoever it's a horrible word. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. But it had, it had that impact. It made me think, What's going yeah. on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's bring well, it down. shifting gears. <laughs> let's talk, let's talk some about your journey to publication, Wanda. Um, you did an interview with Writers Digest where you talked about your 13-year-long journey to publication. <laughs> and since November is um, National Novel Writing Month, um, known online as NaNoWriMo. Um We'd love to hear how you sustained the faith over that long journey. Um, yeah. You can tell your family what you were, what you were. Right. Um, yeah. Tell us, um, tell us what kept you going and, and was there one thing that turned the tide for you in the process? Yeah. So, so first and foremost, kids, boys and girls, don't do what Wanda did. My, <laughs> <laughs> my writing journey is the antithesis of NaNoWriMo. Okay. Um, I um, started writing the book way back in 2008. And um, it's interesting, someone someone asked me recently, well, why did you start even writing? If you always thought about it, but you never did, how did you come to write at that particular point? And, you know, I did because I was working in a job where it didn't feel very valued. Mm-hmm. And writing always gave me, you know, a sense of escape. So I start writing this book and you're right. I wrote it in secret. I didn't even tell my own husband that I was writing a book. Um, And then I got maybe about 60 or 70% through the book. And then I put it away. Um, I, I literally, and because I do all my first drafts in longhand, I like, put that chunk of material in a drawer and actually in an ottoman and never looked at it again. Now I kept thinking about it, but I didn't touch it because I convinced myself that it wasn't very good. No one would want to read it. Why was I trying to do, you know, write a book already had a job. I had kids. I had all this other stuff to do. Why was I trying to add one more thing onto my plate? Um, and, um, so I didn't touch it. And then in 2015, fast forward to 2015, I had gone through some health challenges, um, over a couple years before. And, um, I got through it, but I had decided is most kind of, you know, health challenges and, you know, life altering things do. It made me stop and think, you know, I think it was, was it Mary Oliver who said, you know, what are you going to do with your one precious life? And I said, what in the world, why am I not doing this? If this is what gives me pleasure, why am I not doing this? Um, And so I dug that manuscript back out. And, um, you know, my first assessment was correct. It stunk up the place. It was bad. But I figured I could make something bad better. And I went about, you know, writing to the end. I finally came to an end um, and then thought, you know, this will be great. I like the book. I like the characters. I'll send it off and get an agent and get published. And <laughs> easy peasy, right? <laughs> so that's how it happens. In a movie, in a movie that's how it happens. Yeah, how it happens, right? <laughs> and so began my years-long journey to find an agent. I mean, I was querying everybody, and everybody was like, nah, this is just not the story. And you know what? Truthfully, I don't think the manuscript was ready. 
And that was okay because, you know, I was taking classes and courses and workshops um, and um, because I just knew that I had a good story somewhere in there. There was a good story. I just needed to figure out how to mine it and and polish it. And um, I remember telling my husband because I had applied to, to the Yale Writers Workshop and I got accepted. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is great. And then I thought, oh, my God, I got accepted. Like, I got to be away for two weeks and somebody's got to take care of the baby. (laughs) (laughs) So I finally had to fess up to my husband. uh, I I told him, I was like, hey, look, so um, I got to be away for two weeks. And he's like, two weeks, where are you going? I was like, so, uh, yeah, so I wrote a book and I'm going to this He's like, you wrote a book. (laughs) Yeah. And um, he's like, what did you write a book about? I I told him and he he sat there. And when I finished, he said, wow, that sounds good. That sounds like a movie. And I was like, oh, my gosh, maybe I do have something here. Um, And on I went because, you know, for the next three years, I was still getting rejections, man. I, I literally, I could pay for this wall behind me with all the rejections I got. But for some reason, I was undaunted this time. I, I just love, love, love the characters and all her little secrets. And um, and finally, in 2019, I went to um, Thriller Fest conference and I did Pitch Fest and sat across the table from a lovely woman named Lori Galvin. And she said, tell me about your book. And I did. And sent it to her, and 24 hours later, she said, I am loving this. Wow. Oh, that's great. And Lori is your agent? Lori is my agent. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I love her. I love her. I don't know if she's listening, but she already knows how I feel about it. <laughs> she has been a real champion for this book and for my career. Um, and that's what you really need. I, I, I tell people, you really think, oh, if I could just get an agent. But you really need to get the right agent because getting the wrong agent could be a lot worse than having no agent at all. Yeah. True. So, yeah, it was a long process, um, but it's been well worth the journey. It really has. Awesome. Now, do you still practice law? No, I I can't. I love this too much. Um, I can't. And I can't do both because if I'm going to do this and do it right, I want to give my full attention to it. So, but I still keep my law license active. You never know. This no, business is crazy. No. no. <laughs> well, maybe your husband was prophetic because he said, he said that it, it felt That's like true. a movie. And we now know that Uzo Aduba has bought the rights and is going to make your first book into not a movie, but a limited series for Showtime. So how, tell us about your involvement with that. Wow. So, you know, I am still having pinch me moments about this doggone thing because, you know, you write a book and you think, this is just so great. And then the thought that somebody else looks at it and says, you know what? I could see this in another medium. I could take this to a larger audience. And that just kind of blows me away. So, you know, all the love to to Uzo Aduba and um, the the other producer, uh, executive producer is Denise Davis, who is a really, really talented young woman. Um, Are you guys familiar with Issa Rae? Yes, of course. Denise Davis is her creative partner and the producer of Insecure. So um, she's one of the executive producers. And then the screenwriter is uh, a young man who's so talented. His name is Orrin Squire. And he's written for This Is Us and Google. And uh, I'm forgetting. Oh, The Good Fight. So, oh gosh, I love that team is just bananas, crazy, smart, and talented. And uh, I am just, I'm, I'm over the moon. I I really, you definitely. I I think we're right there with you. Yeah, so congratulations. I can't quit smiling. 
<laughs> no, I'm like a kid to candy shop. I'm like, what? We're right there with you. Thank we you. are huh? super happy for you. Thank you. If you need cameos, you know, you've got to <laughs> Ron, let me tell you, I have heard from relatives I hadn't heard from since family <laughs> reunion 1989. You know, it's like, hey, so. Can I do a walk on roll? <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Not how it works. Sorry. I, um, okay. So, one of the things that we also like to ask are there any books on your nightstand that we might be surprised to find there? Who's surprised to find there? Hmm. You know, I read a lot of different stuff. And I'm actually reading a book now. It's not on my nightstand. I, it's right here. Hang on. And it's actually a book that Lisa Unger um, recommended, and it's called How to Be an Artist. Oh. There we go. How to Be an Artist by Jerry Saltz. And uh, it's a really cool book that just talks about kind of the process of creativity and um, things that you need to think about and perspectives that you need to have if you're creative, you know, whether you paint or you right. can translate into writing. And so that kind of sits on my nightstand because I read from that um, every few nights or so. And then I read recently, oh, I, you guys have probably heard about this. I just finished this book, Jackal by Erin Andrews uh, and Erin Adams, excuse me, Aaron Adams. And oh, this book is so good. It's um, about uh, a young woman who goes home to um, visit uh, or goes home to a wedding of her best friend. And while they're at the wedding, the best friend's daughter disappears. And then they learn that a series of young girls have disappeared from this over the course of decades. And she sets off to find it. And it is um, a mystery that's blended with horror. And it's just incredible. It's a debut. So it's really cool. Sounds awesome. awesome. Yeah. Well, Wanda, if you wouldn't mind sticking around for another minute, we have more to talk about with you. But first, I want to tell you about our Writer's Block podcast with me and the rest of this gang here. <laughs> and plus the two people that we're impersonating. <laughs> we'll, we'll always post links under announcements each Friday when a new one drops. On the most recent episode, uh, Patty and I talked to publishing veteran Beth Ann Patrick about the new podcast that she hosts called Missing Pages. It's fascinating. That's it's a great so episode. fascinating. No, I just it's, listened to it. It's really good. And coming this Friday, Patty and I had a fantastic conversation with Aunt Amy Wallen about her latest book. It's told in graphic novel style, and it's called How to Write a Novel in 20 Pies. And mm -hmm. since it's NaNoWriMo, Amy also does a thing where she bakes a pie every day for 30 days, and she calls it NaNoPiMo. It's a oh, I love that. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. So listen in for that. So listen, review, subscribe, and please tell a friend if you like what you hear. Awesome. And we also want to tell you about the big news about our first edition subscription and a few plans for next year. Did you know we're going on the road together next year? Yes, we are. And I say we because Ron and I are definitely going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, next year, we'll do at least five Friends in Fiction live events, one during each of the Fab Four's book tours and a bonus event in April before any of those book tours kick off. So stay tuned for news about those five live events so you can mark your calendars and make your travel plans and join us as we take our show on the road in April, in May, in June, in July, and once more <laughs> for MKA's Christmas book. If I we, finish it, can we, get a, can we get a bus like the Partridge family? I want one, yes. I want one that looks like the bus in our um, summer tour poster. Yes. Um, yes. Also, our new Friends in Fiction first edition box is available now from the my local indie bookstore here at the Jersey Shore, Booktown in Manasquan, New Jersey. And that features signed hardback first editions from each of the Fab Four in 2023 and a Friends in Fiction kitchen towel that says, Dinner can wait. It's time for Friends in Fiction. You can order them right now at booktown.com. That's booktown with an E at the end. Okay. 
Wanda, one question we always like to ask, what were the values around reading and writing when you were growing up? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't think that there was a time that I didn't have my nose in a book. And I credit both my parents for that um, because they really valued education. They grew up in the Jim Crow South. So when I talked in in, um, Anywhere You Run about secondhand books that were passed on to uh, the Black schools, things like that, that's what my my parents grew up with. And so they really valued education and reading. And I always say, you know, my mom never declined me to purchase a book if I asked for a book. Um, She always, it was so funny because my, my sister that was next to me, she was five years older than me. And I always loved to go to the library. But when I was young, my mother wouldn't let me go to the library by myself. So she would make my sister take me. And my sister was happy to be out playing with her friends and not dragging her little sister to the library. (laughs) And so she, she would, you know, kind of like drop me off and she'd be like, I'll come back and get you. And and one time she forgot to come back and get me. (laughs) And and here's the thing. It didn't bother me because I was sitting out there reading books until, you know, my mom finally came and got me. And, you know, of course my sister got punished and everything, but, you know, I have always loved books. And I think that is largely because of, of my parents. And my dad was one of those that, you know, I'd be like, dad, how do I spell the word, you know, algorithm? And he'd be like, go look it up in the dictionary. <laughs> how can I look it up in the dictionary? I don't know how to spell it. Um, <laughs> learned later. Valuable. Yeah, it was so valuable because, yeah. you know, I went and I was phonetically trying to, yeah. to spell it out so that I could could find the word. And so it was things like that that were so crucial to me being a book lover and I dare say a writer. Right oh. now. Love Definitely. That. That's awesome. Well, Wanda, thanks so much for spending time with us. Tell us about how folks can find you both in real and digital life because I know you've got some other events coming up and you've got a great social media presence. Thank you. So yeah, if you go to my website, wandamorriswrites.com, you can find all my books. You can find all the places where I'll be coming up um, the rest of this year as well as next year um, on the events page. And, you know, really, if you love my books, send me a note. Uh, you can you can send me a note through my contact page. <laughs> if you don't like my books, keep it to yourself. <laughs> but I love hearing. Good advice. Good advice. <laughs> I do. I love hearing from readers. I want, by the way, Wanda's going to stay on for the after show. Yes. Um, so don't, don't leave yet. Don't leave yet. No. And, but just a reminder that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We're live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. And be sure to come back right here next week and on YouTube when we welcome Philippa Gregory. Welcome back, everybody. You know, we've got so many um, comments and questions for Wanda. I don't even know where to start. Where do you think we should start, Meg? Why don't we ask some of the questions that came in from our live viewers for Wanda before we do I that? So too. I definitely agree. All right. Here's so, one. Um, yeah. Um, Kathy Hamdy Swink. She asks, how did the state of Georgia compare to Mississippi when you did your research? Was Georgia just as bad? Um, Georgia was pretty bad too. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, the closer to the north that you got, a little better things got. But but Georgia was was pretty bad too. Um, That's dramatic. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, I I never thought about ranking them in terms of <laughs> you know horrendousness. But I got to admit, you know, they both had the clans and, and things like that. That Mississippi Citizens Council was pretty darn bad because, um, you know, they had the resources in addition to, you know, just having, you know, 
the perspective that they had, but they had the resources to put behind um, all the horrendous things that they were doing. And, you know, and it's unfortunate in Mississippi, some people were so determined to keep things segregated that they would shutter their businesses rather than open them up to blacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's what I say about some of the characters in my book is that they worked against their own self-interest yeah. all in the name of hatred and racism. And it, it, that just kind of boggles my mind every time I think about that. You know, I was doing research for a book, uh, a mystery that I wrote. Um, and in it, I have an abandoned amusement park just off I-20 in Atlanta. And I had a mat, I had seen, um, gosh, it's been gone for so long, probably 25 years, but you could see the remnants of, um, either a Ferris wheel or a roller coaster from I-20. And um, I was fascinated with that. And so I made up um, a amusement park in Atlanta that's defunct and stuff happens there. But what I found out after I'd already made it up was that there was, there was an amusement park in Atlanta. I think it was, I called it Fun Town and I book, but it had another name and it closed <laughs> In the 60s, Martin Luther King wanted to take his children to this amusement park. Now, this was long before Six Flags Over Georgia. And um, he showed up with his children, and they closed that amusement park. Rather than, and it's like swimming pools. They closed it down and just left it so that they did not have to integrate. Yeah. So as bad as you think, as bad as you imagine it was, it was worse. It was worse. It was worse. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot of people asking about your knitting too. We had a couple of questions. Um, Carrie Soderman wanted to know, are you in a knitting group? And Brenda Gaskell, this is an interesting question, wants to know if your knitting projects tie in with your writing projects. No, they don't. I'll answer the second question. They don't usually. I usually just use knitting as a way to kind of figure out plot points. Like I'll get to a point where I have written myself in a corner or something and I'm trying to figure out, gosh, how do I get her? How do I get her off the 20th floor of that building? You know, uh, when a bad guy's chasing her with a gun. Um, And so I will knit and, um, so I have my, my family teases me because I have like a stack like this high of just blankets because I'm just doing a stitch, one or two stitches, nothing complicated because I, I would have to think about that. So I just need something that will busy my hands and help kind of free up my mind. I am not in a knitting club. I, I wish I, I could find one here. I, I'd love to do that if I could find some time, but um, I, yeah, I love to knit and crochet. And for me now, it's a way of staying close to my mom who has passed on because she taught me how to knit and crochet. And, um, and so every time I do it, I always feel like, you know, it's something that she and I shared because none of my other sisters, well, I have one sister who crochets, she doesn't knit. Um, But yeah, it was a way that, you know, we would stay close. That's wonderful. I love that. What else have we got coming in here? I'm looking. Um, well, somebody, um, we've, we've got questions uh, that folks have left on the website. And so somebody asked um, about our favorite writing spot. Wanda, what's your favorite writing spot? Oh, gosh. Um, wherever there's some cheeses. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, you know what? Actually, it's right here where I am. Um, this is a little room that's off um, my living room in my house. And I'm surrounded by, you know, pictures of people I love. Let me see this way the, over this shoulder, that shoulder. Yeah, that's a picture of me graduating from law school with both my parents flanking me. I love that. And then on this side, that's a picture of my mom when she was like 19. And man, she was so freaking stylish. You guys want to see that picture? Yeah, she looks fine. Yeah, she looks fine. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love I love the person at the at the Obama rally the other day that said you are oh MS fine. I love it. Well, you're just like you're fine. Every time tell you said that, that was hilarious. <laughs> That's my mom. Oh, oh wow. wow! You see that? Look yeah. at that dress. You know, yeah. She was stunning, and uh, no doubt. She was kind of a little bit of the influence for Violet um, in the book. Yeah, because she was just so pretty. I mean, I've always thought my mom was the prettiest woman I've ever seen. Before. Oh, well, you always, I hope you have to think that. You yeah. know, my, I write, I follow the sun around my house. I'm a Leo. Mm. And you're seeing my office. I always, you know, I, I do the show from my office. I rarely write in here. With a mm. nice office, it's got everything I need except sunlight. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I write in bed in the morning in my PJs, and then I move downstairs to the sunroom um, when the sun is there. And um, that's now somebody asked, What is your biggest distraction to your writing? Um, my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I love him. He may be watching. I love you, honey. But, you know, he's like my best friend. And so when he comes in, you know, he's usually like gossiping about somebody or, you know, he wants to chat. And then I'm like, OK, I got to work and then we'll start chatting. And I'm like, wait a minute. I just blew, you know, 45 minutes. He's usually pretty good about, you know, giving me the space that I need. But, you know, sometimes he'll come in and, and we're sitting in here laughing and I'm like, I got to get to work. I got a deadline. <laughs> um, but I'm usually, you know, I, I kind of learned to manage social media because that used to be my distraction. Like I would sit here, I write a little bit, and then I pick up my phone and then yeah, I fall into a social media hole. Um, oh, I think your light just went out. What? I, I rolled my chair backwards and I think I ran over the cord. Yeah, so I'm just I've thing. learned to manage that now. So I don't fall into those social media holes. Um, What's your biggest motivation to continue writing? Oh, the fact that I get to do this every day, like it took me so long to kind of figure out that this is the thing that I love doing the most. And I I literally, I kid you not, I am so excited every morning when I wake up and I know I get to come to this desk and write. And um, I, I've, I've not felt this way about any job I've ever had. And so, and this doesn't even feel like a job. It, it feels like a love affair. Oh, oh I love that. I do too. That's great. So your book is your, um, your boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> don't tell my husband. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say a word. Um, one, one last ask us anything from Lori Boyd Hagemeyer. I might be butchering your last name. I apologize. Wants to know if you guys also write in a journal or a diary for personal memory keeping. So do you guys, do you journal? I do. I journal every morning before I start writing. Um, You know, it's just kind of my way of loosening up my brain and getting my thoughts together. Um, And now I I feel like if I don't do it, I I feel like I'm missing something in my writing routine. But I've kept journals ever since I was very young. And do you keep them all? Like you still have them all? I still have them all. And now I've gone to um, computerize. I, I write them on the computer. So, you know, heaven help me if, if I lose my computer. You know, people have but you write, But you write your books longhand. Isn't that crazy? But I yeah. think it's because I'm not like writing new material. I think it's just that I'm just ruminating with stuff in my head because I'll think about, you know, oh, uh, you know, today Alexandra went to the dentist and she had to get a root canal and I wish I were there because I know she feels, you know, my oldest daughter, she lives in New York and you know, so I'm just writing about whatever is happening in my life. Mm-hmm. But when I'm creating new material, um, 
you know, in these fictional worlds, I, I can't go straight to the computer. Yeah, I don't journal. I, um, I for a long time, um, I wrote in yellow legal pads. And then a couple of years ago, I switched over because these are more compact composition books. Um, and so I write the date and the day and where I, and then I write in the, on the left-hand corner is the day and the date. The right-hand corner is where I'm writing. So if I'm writing here uh, at our house in Atlanta, I write Scroll Hollow, which is, you know, I have to name everything. If, if I'm on Tybee, I'll write that I'm on Tybee. If I'm someplace else, I write that I'm there. And I might, I might write, not usually, I don't do it anymore. I used to say, you know, I'm so annoyed, blah, 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 blah. But when I, I took a writer's workshop, as you did, um, Wanda, with Sue Grafton, and she was a big proponent of journaling. And she said every morning she would start journaling and she would tell herself what had to happen in the plot of her book that day. And so she would say, okay, what Kinsey needs to find out how this person, you know, got to the scene of the crime and why they're a suspect. So sometimes if I'm stuck, I'll do that. Mm. Yeah, I do. I do write about like my plots or if I'm stuck mm -hmm. at a certain point, then I'm kind of like, how do I get past this? If she does right. this, could she get out of the building that way? And so I'm kind of figuring it out that way too. And then have you guys ever heard of the bubble method? I have seen it used. Yeah. You know who does the bubble method is Laura Lipman. Does she? I do it too. And man, I tell you, once I discovered that, it just kind of like opened up my creative head. I was like, boom. Um, and so when I'm stuck in things and I can't figure them out, I use the bubble method where you kind of draw a bubble and then you kind of have these offshoots of what you want to come out of this idea that's inside the bubble. Um, wow. Yeah, I, writing, I, tip. <laughs> yeah, writing tip. Yeah. There's your writing tip. Here's your writing tip. All right. We are out of time. People are leaving to go get dinner or get wine or whatever. Wanda, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Yes, yes. Great. Fun. And uh, if you're in the Atlanta area, hopefully next week, um, Wanda will be joining some other writers at mm. Foxtail Books. That's Thursday night, right? Thursday yes. the 10th. November 10th. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be there with our pals, Lisa Unger and the Cray Cray, Karen Slaughter. <laughs> oh, oh, maybe I I'm know. coming. And there's a, <laughs> and there is a uh, rumor going around that Wanda and maybe another favorite Atlanta author, Jocelyn Jackson will join us. So Ooh. Mm. exciting. Yeah. Should be oh, epic. <laughs> epic. <laughs> Meg, road trip, road trip, Meg. Road trip. <laughs> Thanks thank so you all much, so Wanda. much for having me. This has been such a blast. Thank you, oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, Wanda, you're, you're adored. You're adored. <laughs> Don't forget to join us next Wednesday night. We're going to have Philippa Gregory. You're not going to want to miss it. No. Good night, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.